The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown. To zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown podcast and radio show. Today, we're talking all about biotechnology with Dana O'Brien and Andy Levine and how it's making our food systems more sustainable. So Dana is going to introduce himself first, followed by Andy Levine from the American Seed and Trade Association. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Dana? Sure. Yeah. My name is Dana O'Brien. I am the executive vice president for Food and Agriculture at the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. Uh, I've lived in Washington for about 22 years. I grew up in the Midwest, in Missouri, a small town, actually not so small when you look at the size of the towns around me, but a town of about 20,000 people in the middle of the state of Missouri. Came out here to Washington, D.C., where I live now, to to work work with my congressman, my hometown congressman, Worked for him for about 14 years and then came over to bio in 2011. And here I've, I've focused my work on uh, public advocacy around agricultural and food innovation primarily, but also some in the renewable products and, and biofuel space as well. I worked as an advocate in Congress and now, now I lead lead a, a division of, of companies that sit around a table and work to advance good public policy and good stakeholder relationships. Wow, that's very cool. And sustainability, I assume, is quite important to you? Absolutely. I was really pleased to be invited to join this conversation because of the work that, that you all, that you do, this conversation around sustainability, Thank you. Around, around climate change, around waste reduction solutions. Those are all really aligned with our vision at bio. That's what our organization is. It's who bio is, the, the, the men and women who, who use biology to, to really improve lives. And it's the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yep. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about the organization. Yeah, absolutely. So we have what I would call a group of a thousand like-minded companies and other research institutions, state biotechnology associations, some public sector universities, all with a common mission of using the wisdom of biology and our understanding of the inner workings of, of life across the, the space to, to help society meet the biggest challenges. Really, in many ways, using biology, particularly in the ag and food space, as a replacement to chemistry over the long term. Obviously, chemistry is very important, but you know, I, I look back to one of the founders of the biotechnology space and the map, mapper of the human genome, Craig Venter, who talked about this century being the biology century, where our understanding of biology and ecology and data are all going to help provide these solutions. And that's what bio is, um, where the companies and the, the researchers that are actually doing that, and we represent their public policy and stakeholder interests. And you said there's a thousand companies? Thousand companies, um, mostly small companies. It's probably more accurate to say a thousand members because some of those are universities, some of those are state biotech associations and international biotech associations. But yeah, a lot. I mean, hundreds of small companies really working to use the tools of biology to solve solve big problems. Andy, how did you get into this field? I had the great fortune after I finished college to go to work. Uh, in Washington, D.C. for a congressman from Florida, and I just happened to pick oh, up cool. his agriculture issues. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine, uh, Florida is such an environmentally sensitive and just curious, unique uh, state with the center of the state being uh, lakes and swamps and sand hills and the beach being, you know, where everybody goes. And the state is very uh, behind California, one of the most prolific agriculture-producing states in the country that people just don't know about. And you can imagine the sensitivity between development and agriculture production in the environment of the state. Uh, it made it really unique. And so I was able to experience and work a lot with uh, 
our water managers in the state, our state government, farmers especially, on what they were doing to make not only their farms sustainable, but you know environmentally sensitive to the issues that they address, that they had to deal with and in the pest and disease and so they all played very well together uh you know of course back then Laura, we didn't call it sustainability you know you we called it uh, you know environmental production and you know, we called it all of those things that uh, uh today are uh, i would say mainstream and people mm-hmm. are are looking at more closely and uh, realizing that uh, you can produce crops you can feed the world, you can feed mankind and still do it in a sustainable manner that is a, a benefit to the farm, a benefit to the environment, and obviously something that you could pass down from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's So that kind of got yeah. me hooked into it. And obviously the agriculture side of it is is where I lean, but the, the, mm-hmm. the science part of it is fascinating to me today, the opportunity that discovery in uh, whether it's genetics in plants and animals or whether it's um, uh, the soil microbiome and the benefit of uh, building up the organic matter in soil, all of those things are great opportunities. And it's all discovery at our, our main universities, our land-grant institutions here in the U.S. and your agriculture universities in Canada uh, and all the discovery that's going on. And how do we bring that into our production practices? Mm-hmm. And keep going, too. Like, I think yeah. things are just going to keep getting more and more sustainable and healthier. And I think that there's probably a lot of progress going on right now when it comes to food. It really it is. Like... It's, it's amazing to me. I kind of – I relate it to Moore's Law of Agriculture today. What's that? Uh, Moore, Moore's Law was uh, – it was uh, brought about in the late 80s, early 90s, and it was basically that uh, the capacity of a – capacity of a disc or a computer doubled every 16 months and our capacity in genetics in biology in agriculture plants and animals is is rapidly may not be every 16 to 18 months but it's it's rapid because we've been able to make major discoveries um over the last couple of years that benefit all of agriculture and so that uh that rapid pace is going to continue and so you work for the American Seed Trade Association. What exactly is that? Well, it's a trade association. We re- represent companies that produce seed for planting. So companies across the board from, I would say, or anything that's planted by seed, we represent those companies. And so we look at everything from alfalfa to zucchini and all production methods from conventional to organic to biotechnology. Very cool. And uh, so this is really, really important today because our population is going to hit 8 billion soon. I keep kind of like waiting to hear that it's hit 8 billion, but I don't think anyone's like (laughs) totally, you know, there's no like counter like, you know, in the New York Times ball drops on New Year's Eve. Like, (laughs) So I don't know if we're there yet at 8 billion or if we're we're close. I don't know. But that is a lot of mouths to feed, right? It is. It really is. It's a lot to deal with. Yeah. So, so how is gene editing helping that? Well, plant breeding in general has a great opportunity to address both the increase that we're going to see in population as well as the challenges that we're seeing with respect to um, uh, climate change. And so how do, how do we help plants adapt to those different demands of trying to increase yield, uh, produce the crops that uh, those growing populations need. I mean, populations in India and China and Southeast Asia and South America are going to be different and have different demands than those in um, in the U.S. and uh, or in Europe. So you're trying to look at what those are, but you look at crops that are better adapted to um, higher heat and less water, like California is experiencing now. Uh, you look at rice in uh, different parts of the world and and maybe not having to flood uh, fields like you have to today, those kind of opportunities with gene editing really help target what that solution is to try and address those those challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Mother Nature gave us an incredible amount of um, of bounty in the genetics of the crops that we have and the plants that we have, and so breeders are always looking at um, what is what's the wild wild relative and what are the characteristics of that wild relative. And how do we possibly use those positive characteristics to improve the commercial varieties we have today? A great example is, um, you probably have seen this one, Laura, but it's um, uh, a lettuce variety out of um, California. Our plant breeder from the University of California, Davis, 
uh, was driving around uh, town out there in California, and she saw a wild variety uh, of uh, lettuce actually growing very well during a drought period, and it was in a uh, parking lot of abandoned building. She went and took samples from the plant. They went back and analyzed the genetics of it uh, in their laboratories and found the gene that, or the characteristic that uh, enables that plant to survive drought conditions, and they're looking to bring that characteristic into commercial lettuce varieties. The unique nature of this is most of that wild variety you don't want in your lettuce. It's probably bitter, has a very bad head to it, probably doesn't produce very well, but it does survive in drought, dry, hot conditions. Mm -hmm. And so how do you bring that into lettuce varieties to enable lettuce breeders to use that as a new characteristic that they bring in to help survive the changing climate? What I'll really say to that, I, I say this frequently when I get the question about, about feeding the world. It's, it's a good one, and we get it a lot. But in me, the, the question is less about feeding the world, which I think can seem very abstract to a lot of people. It's a very big picture. And in, in my mind, it's, it's really how we use our understanding of biology to do more with less. Like how, how do we, how does society enable farmers to produce more nutritious food with less stress on the land, with le using less water, using fewer chemical inputs? Um, so yeah. for me, it's like looking at the big picture and you look at climate change, you look at its impact on on agriculture, on food, on human population presence in particular parts of the world, what biotech can do is really enable us to, to manage that production of, of large amounts of food more sustainably without stressing those really important natural resources. Because if we don't do that, if we just use the old-fashioned way, we're going to tear down a lot more forests, we're going to dig up a lot more fields that releases more carbon into the the atmosphere. So for me, it's feeding the world, yes, important, but it's, in my mind, it's really how does society enable farmers to produce more nutritious food with less stress on everything else? There are products, I think, being developed along, along those lines, right? There's drought-tolerant row crops. There's crops that can grow in more salty soil, given that Climate change is impacting soil health and soil conditions. There are animals that companies are researching with universities that are more heat tolerant. So as temperatures rise in, in different parts of the world where, you know, closer to the equator where there are, you know, hotter conditions, how do people provide protein for their, for their families and to grow their own economies? So I think those are the kinds of products that will be important to embrace as we try to do more with less stress on our planet. Absolutely. What breeders do all the time is identify conditions that plants and animals grow in or are raised in. They monitor soil. They monitor temperature. They monitor humidity. Uh, they monitor how much sunshine a particular part of the planet gets. And they are able to then look at the genetic code of the plant and they're able to identify more precisely and quickly than just by regular crossbreeding what traits in that genetic code make it withstand salt better or which ones make it um, resistant to drought more easily or which ones make its roots grow deeper into the soil so that it can stand up in a drought and not get knocked over or a windstorm. The Congress, the public, and the companies have all invested in mapping the genetic codes of all of these plants and many animals and the human and human beings. And now we're taking that data that the public and others have invested and really putting all the pieces of the puzzle out on the table. And through editing, you can very quickly, precisely using the plant's own genome, cut something, rearrange something really quickly to get a trait that, that actually does what you just asked about. Well, over the last, uh, I would say, 15 to 20 years, Laura, the, the plant genetic community, as well as the human and animal genetic communities, have been able to um, dramatically increase their understanding of plant and animal genomes and what characteristics in them cause what actions. 
It's much like with humans. We know in a lot of cases what makes us more susceptible to cancer or less susceptible, more susceptible to pneumonia or flu and less susceptible. In those things, we're finding the same discoveries in plants. But also you, also, you have a number of characteristics in the plant that are negative to production. Um, in heirloom tomatoes, they have characteristics that make it very difficult to grow a substantial yield or a substantial number of heirloom tomatoes on each plant. Just the characteristic that makes, you know, that comes out in heirloom, but you also have great flavor. So with gene editing, what we look at is we try to find those characteristics that are a benefit to uh, consumers, to farmers, to the environment, and breed toward those. So with gene editing, we can go into a um, wild lettuce variety, find that characteristic in the genetic code, take that specific genetic uh, characteristic out, and replace it in a commercial variety of lettuce in the exact same place. So are you... The genetic code of the lettuce plant, wild or commercial, is the same. It Mm -hmm. just depends on what genes and characteristics are expressed and which aren't, and in what manner. Are you using CRISPR for this? Yeah, you'll be using CRISPR for this in this case. Wow, very cool, yeah. That, so you that go helps in you... and, and you know, a naturally occurring enzyme that's in the plant mm-hmm. goes in and finds that specific spot because that's what you know the enzyme will do, and it takes that specific characteristics out, clips it, and it's able to then put it into the to the uh, germ plasm, what we call, of the commercial variety in the exact same spot, and you just replace that. Mm-hmm. And so with gene editing, you're looking at that specific replacement. Mm-hmm. In what we would call conventional varieties today, you would have to just cross the plants and then you test to make sure you got that characteristic in the commercial variety. But then you spend years yeah. and generations of the plant back trying to back cross all the bad genetics that you get. It's such a big waste, right? Like what if you just grow it, a whole crop that's just gross? <laughs> well, it, it's, it's, uh, it is a waste, but it's, the bigger issue is the amount of time yeah. it takes you to back cross and hope that you keep the good genetics in that you want to stay in Each and get season. rid of all the bad. Yeah, and you can't just keep growing and growing. Well, I guess in California you could grow more, but like here we just have a, yeah. such a short growing season. I can't imagine doing yeah. that. But this has been something that's been going on for thousands of years, and I think that's something people don't realize when – because people are like really against – GMOs. And I have always thought they're so amazing because they do exactly, first of all, it's amazing that we can go in and look and like take the genes and move them around, right? Which is cool. Um, But then it's just, it's making things so much better and maybe healthier and, and stuff. But like, why are people typically afraid of GMOs? It's the concept of uh, playing God. You're going in and doing things that God didn't create. Well, if you look at nature, or if you look at what's natural today, then we wouldn't have a lot of the crops that we all enjoy, especially uh, people who, who, who like natural. I mean, kale was created through, from a wild mustard plant. Uh, broccolini was created from a wild mustard plant. Hmm. There's a lot of crops that we have today that would not be edible if they were not uh, – it didn't move through the generations of plant breeding mm-hmm. over the last hundreds of years. Yeah, it's just like of years. speeding it up and like looking at yeah. it closer, right. right? And, you know, that's what I was trying to say is we've been doing this like with crossbreeding and selection and stuff. Like farmers have been doing this for a very long time. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, was, I, it was, I always like to say we've been doing this since people moved out of caves. Mm-hmm. You're always selecting those varieties that are hardier, that are tastier, mm-hmm. that produce yield better, that, you know, you, you know, early on it was the basics. And now we're able to look at it for color, for flavor, for taste. And with gene editing, what we're able to do is really focus on those characteristics within the plant family that are beneficial, um, whether it's a disease resistance or whether it's size or flavor or color. You know, you look at purple cauliflower today and white cauliflower today and orange cauliflower. Those characteristics are in the plant, but in certain varieties, they don't express themselves. So with plant breeding and things like gene editing, we can get them to express themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas you can really see that when you're just trying to do it kind of on your own, I guess. Right. Um, but yeah, people are, are, are kind of nervous about them. Um, I think, you know, okay, so the one thing that I don't like about GMOs, and maybe you can speak to this a little bit, is that I know that you're making them 
resistant to like things like Roundup so that we can spray the crops. And then I worry that that Roundup and like the pesticides and stuff are getting on our food more. So that mm -hmm. that I think is my biggest worry. Right, right. And there's been just a number of research done with the looking at the final product, looking at how that's used in corn and soybeans and cotton. And there really is there's no residual um, product found in, in the final, you know, whether it's feed or processed food products as it goes through. Um, Where does it go? Does it just wash it dissipates. away? Uh, Roundup is one of those products that has a very short half-life. And so once it has the effect on that plant that it's targeted to, it, it, it dissipates in the, essentially in the environment. Hmm, it's not that. one that has a long half-life that you know, stays in the soil, stays in the water, stays in things forever. Mm -hmm. And so that, that was the target of, the, of glyphosate when it was first discovered is um, much less harmful to uh, other plants in the environment and also very quick acting and very quick breakdown of the product. You know, most chemicals will break down at some, at some time in, in, during some process, whether it's photosynthesis or um, you know, water impact or just time. And so what you look at for things, especially in the agriculture community, you, you want to find those that break down as quickly as possible into just naturally occurring molecules. Unfortunately, that public reaction to that herbicide-resistant crop variety diminished the public's acceptance for all kinds of other beneficial products that could have been available to the mm -hmm. public that would have done many of the same things we're talking about here with respect to editing. You could do a lot of these things with, with transgenic or GMO technology as well. But that, that conversation is sort of, we've moved on from that. I mean, we're, that technology, GMO technology exists. It will exist. We're going to support it because it's good and safe. But I think there's so much investment happening beyond that in this new realm of food and farm innovation. And by listening to the history, we can have a new conversation about the future, I think. You know, I get a little frustrated when I'm on stage with people who are like, no chemicals, no biotech, no, no pesticides, just organic. It's like, well, wait a minute. Organic has pesticides. They're organic pesticides, but they have pesticides. So don't say no pesticides because then you'll have to get it, take them away from your organic producers as well. So what is yeah. an organic pesticide? Uh, copper sulfate. That doesn't sound that organic. Exactly. And there are a number of – a lot of the synthetic pesticides are based on organic pesticides from nature. Mm -hmm. But they're synthetic with typically oil and gas, right? Usually pesticides? Yeah. You, you, I mean, you're using, yeah, you're using synthetic products on it. Mm -hmm. but, but they're made to mimic something. Exactly. In nature, so yeah, it's it's. I guess it's good to try and get rid of those, those as much as we can. But then, if you go mm -hmm. to organics, I don't think we can feed the world on organics, which is yeah. the problem, right? Right. I, I, I'm not sure how. I unless somebody's got some formula hidden somewhere that we that they're not sharing. Mm -hmm. And we have to feed people, and <laughs> this is something that's so important. Like the environment's very important, but we have to not go into war, and we have to make sure people are not like starving and super desperate and, and struggling because yeah. I think that's when they're going to go and hurt the environment more. Uh, so I agree with you. I mean, that's where we see plenty of examples around the world. When, when people aren't able to feed their family, that's when there's most unrest. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's also when you'll go into, you know, the jungle for bushmeat and, and mm -hmm. kill endangered species and yeah. you'll cut down forests. Uh, like I always say, I support our oil and gas industry here in Canada. And part of it is because if if I can't afford propane to heat my house, like I'll just go cut down my trees. <laughs> you know, like, we have to be really careful with these these trade offs and understand that we oh, yeah. we have come so far, and especially with food, it's really amazing what we're doing with food and to feed people. Yes. I was just in Indiana and I got to take a look at an app on a farmer's phone and it had the maps of his fields yeah. on his phone. And Pretty cool, isn't it? I was actually pretty blown away, yeah, because I, I grow food. My 
ancestors were farmers here in Canada a long time ago. So we kind of use these older techniques. And you could see on the map, it was color coded, where yep. certain areas had more moisture, you know, and you could see if you went out and looked physically at the field, you could see there was maybe like a dip in the ground there. Yep. And this was mapping it. And this actually like saves so many seeds from being wasted, and it plants them at different densities and all sorts of things. So I thought, it, yeah, I did think that it was really cool. It's pretty amazing. I was out in St. Louis a couple of years ago at the Climate Corporation headquarters and watched the watched all of that in action. And it it really does help a farmer understand like what, you know, what parts of her field are underperforming, uh where where water is gathering, where where nitrogen runoff might be yeah, yeah. Dam- damaging and they can adjust their planting accordingly. I think this combination of good biology and data data collection and satellites and artificial intelligence. We've heard a lot about precision medicine through the years. We're actually getting to a point where we're talking about precision agriculture in a way that is way different than we've ever thought about farming. You're going to have companies looking at particular regions of the United States and being able to develop exactly the right plant um, with exactly the right planting information for specific counties. And I think that's, that's really exciting. Yeah, it is really exciting. You know, I think I get this picture that maybe Americans get attacked a little bit for their food system. But talking to you, you're in DC, you're working with Congress. It seems like America is interested in sustainability and that your country is working hard on producing sustainable food. Would, would you agree? I think so. I mean, sometimes we talk past each other. When I mean we, I mean the agriculturalists and some of the rest of society that's disconnected from farming. And what we really believe in at Bio and what we've invested in through our advocacy and our our communications and stakeholder relationships is finding these shared values and the shared problems that all of us want to solve and being able to talk about biotechnology as a tool to solve that problem rather than just trust us. This is this GMO is going to be safe. You don't have anything to worry about. That kind of argument doesn't work. And that, I think, got us into a bad spot in the public and with policymakers. And um, I believe that paradigm is, needs to shift and is shifting to more of one where we're like what we're talking about, right? There's a problem you care about solving. And how do we all come together as responsible people in society to solve that problem. Totally. Yeah. We want healthy food for as many people as possible. Everyone, I guess you could say everyone. And we want healthy soils and we want a healthy environment. And how do we do this, right? And how do we feed so many people on a mass scale and keep everything else healthy? And then, of course, you know, the packaging is a totally different issue than than your issue, of course. But then that's kind of the next part of it, right, is transportation and and packaging and then the waste of that. And our members at Bio are working on that stuff too. So just, oh, just yeah? like I'm, you know, we're talking about food and farming in this conversation. We have companies that are also developing um, renewable plastics out of plant-based sources versus petroleum sources. Mm-hmm. We have companies w- working to develop biofuels versus petroleum-based fuels. Yeah. So we have just as passionately as I'm speaking about food and farming. We have this whole ecosystem of companies that are really trying to to do some of the other stuff you talked about and reduce ocean waste and reduce the use of single-use plastics. And think about all of those other ways that biology and genetics can help to, again, solve this problem of climate and waste. Yeah, and I think that someone in the organization as well is working on uh, editing genes to reduce food waste. How is that possible? Is that with making food last longer? Or I think, wasn't there something that happened with apples where yep. somebody changed it so that when you, you know, when you take a bite and then you put it down for a minute, and it turns brown. Like I think, aren't yep. some apples edited to not turn brown so fast? Yep. So there, with regard to, to how plants can be edited to reduce food waste, a couple of points I want to make. One is just a couple of data points that people, they're sort of mind blowing. One is I read somewhere that 
1.4 billion hectares of land is used to grow food that is thrown away or lost or wasted Black. each year. And, yeah, and that, that, that number is 20 times, that's 20 times the size of Texas every year. Like planet-wide? Um, planet-wide. Mm -hmm. The second data point was 150,000 tons of food in the U.S. tossed out each year. Again, really big numbers. So, so crazy. For, for us, I think, you know, we've been committed to this food waste conversation because both biotechnology at large, whether it's, whether it's GMO, whether it's RNAi technology, whether it's gene editing, whether it's synthetic biology, any of those platform technologies can help to improve plants. And like you said, reducing the browning of fruits and vegetables is a really big target for companies that want to reduce food waste. Avocados, apples, potatoes, lettuce, all of those vegetables have browning characteristics that when the oxygen hits them, they turn brown. And then what happens when families see that in their on their countertop is they toss it in the garbage. And yeah. so we you know we have companies that are working on apples, well on all of those. We have companies that are working on all of those to try to reduce the browning. We also have companies that are looking at delayed delayed rottening so that you felt you know fruits and vegetables will just last longer on the produce shelves, which I think has the ability to help people who live in food deserts get access to fruits and vegetables because oftentimes rural areas and lower income inner city areas get the short shrift. Totally. All the good produce goes to the rich people in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. And and I think, you know, if we can invest energy around producing more fruits and vegetables for these food deserts, there's a social justice dynamic to this conversation as well. Yeah, we've got that problem in our north with our some of our Inuit populations. I've been up there and I remember just being blown away by how expensive fruit was and how small it was. And, you know, when you yep. go to the grocery store and you just see maybe some plums or something and they're so rock hard, like I would just yep. never buy one like that. I don't know. Uh, but they don't get as much fresh, you know, fruit and veg. Exactly. That they probably want. And then it's so expensive, too, when, when they get it. So, yeah, I can see that. And, that would and definitely... people don't make a lot of money in rural America. Let's just be honest. And, and in inner city America as well. It's like, yeah, I firmly believe there's a true social justice aspect to that conversation. Is there any anything else uh, that's going on in terms of food waste? Well, when you look at food waste, uh, some of the main things that that are being targeted by the seed companies and plant breeders are um, one shelf life. Can we extend that uh, maturity period for the whether it's a tomato or lettuce or other things, and enable and enable that process to continue to stay fresh so that somebody doesn't buy a head of lettuce and uses half and you know doesn't use the other half in a week and throws it away, and it ends up in landfill. Mm -hmm. um, the potato and the potato breeding community is doing a great deal to look at longevity in potatoes because that is one of the crops that tends to be most thrown away. The uh, non-browning apple, same thing, looking at that. And essentially what you're doing is you're turning off that enzyme that causes the um, sugars to break down quicker. Cool. And so that stays fresh and and white in an apple longer or mm -hmm. stays fresh and crispier longer in lettuce. Mm -hmm. There's a there's a company called Intrexon that's working on it in lettuce to give it an extra 10, 10 days to two weeks mm -hmm. of longevity for shelf life. So if you can extend that, then people would be throwing things away less mm -hmm. and maximizing the use of those, those materials. Yeah. Um, so those are some things that we look at with respect to um, uh, food waste uh, down the road. And, and it's just part of the solution, as we all know. I mean, it's it's the the size of the meal, you know, portion size. I don't know how many time, times I go into a restaurant, and there's no way I can eat everything they put on my plate, even yeah. when I try to. I mean, it's it, so you end up throwing a lot away, and what do we do with that? And there's got to be some things that how we can handle that. Um, but But gene editing can help play a role in that, too to help sustain that um, longevity uh, for use of the product. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the areas that we see uh, most, most opportunity. 
You know, bananas have gotten so big lately that I always go for the smallest ones because by the time I get halfway through a giant banana, I'm like, oh, I don't even want this anymore. Like I can just get the <laughs> little banana and then I'm good. So I buy well, the little ones. And <laughs> that is an area too that I would add to it is is just uh, if you look at there are in some grocery stores or not in all grocery stores yet, you've got uh, smaller bell peppers. You know, we've uh, you know, not all all tomatoes have the same genetics, but they're not all the same size. Mm-hmm. And if you eat some of these uh, really cool small um, cherry tomatoes, yep, you know they got some that they're called cotton candy and things like that, and they're just really really flavorful. And those are things that will encourage people to eat them. You know, I yeah. end up cutting them up and putting them in my sandwich instead of a whole. Sometimes instead of a whole slice of tomato, they're just really quite tasty. Mm-hmm. You know, and so there are things that uh, companies are looking at w- with changing the size of personal watermelon. A person? Oh, oh my goodness! I grew one this year, and I didn't mean to. I just watermelons. I don't think grow particularly <laughs> well, so I, I tried. And I, there's a picture of it on my Instagram. It should still be on there. Oh, but, I'll, I'll look at that. Yeah. Um, it was. I could hold it in the palm of my hand. The Were whole, you able to eat it? It was so delicious, and I was so worried that it was going to be all rind because I've heard people have grown watermelons here and then right. there's like no red part in the middle right. uh, so I saved all the seeds and then I'm going to plant those next year so I might have more like they're, it's yeah. like bigger than a golf ball but like just a tiny bit smaller than like a harder like a hard ball baseball wow um, but yeah no it was really really good I was so happy with them my melons turned out to be really small as well like that. <laughs> I don't know why but well some of that is just a um, depending on the varieties you get and whether you need to pollen they need to cross pollinate so you got to put Plant males and females, you got to put a bunch together so they pollinate each other. Mm-hmm. That's why I always have a problem in my garden. If I don't have hybrid varieties, they never do very well for some reason. Do you think they, but wouldn't they not grow if they didn't pollinate? Well, they wouldn't, no. And it just may not have been the proper amount or something along that line. Yeah. Because I've, I've tried to do beans and I just have not been very successful with them. Yeah, it's funny how things grow like some years very well and Others, not at all. Like last year, we didn't have good potatoes. This year, we did. You know, one year, we've had giant carrots, and then another year, I think it's just like the cycles of rain and weather Mm -hmm. and temperature and stuff, because we're planting the same seeds. Early germination and root set is almost always the first two things. If that goes well, you've got a pretty good chance of getting a good crop. But but personal watermelon was one of those goals in in the end, because everyone realized that all you could buy is these big old watermelons that were great tasting. But unless you had it was, unless a it was a family reunion, you could never yeah. eat the whole thing. Yeah, totally. No, there and and it's funny you say that because there are smaller ones in the grocery store. There's these like little ones, and uh, mm-hmm. I get those, and then my kid will go through it for the week. But yeah, I wouldn't want to buy a giant watermelon. I have to lift it in and out of the cart and bring right, it home, right. and then store it and yeah that's a very good example and there's a thing online i'm sure you've seen it it's like an article with all the different fruits and how they looked like Mm, 100 years ago or so well that's the natural look (laughs) smaller right the watermelons Mm -hmm. so they were rock hard yeah and uh yeah yeah, there was uh what was it i think like the banana looked really weird like it had a lot of seeds or something in it Yeah. yeah well and another perfect example and i think we all take it for granted because it happened a while ago, actually, um, is just the uh, the baby carrots. You know, they're not those aren't grown that small, but they're grown now long and slender, and they're cut and shaped that way. But the carrot itself, if you look at it, it almost looks like a pe- a pencil. You know, something bigger than that, like a magic marker. Mm-hmm. So it's like and it's just more a long even. orange carrot. <laughs> yeah. And then it goes through the processing process, but they're not wasting a lot of things. It's those carrots are about the size of the carrots that we grow. Mm-hmm. Except you know it's got the the, uh, the skin taken off, but that's that, that was a breeding process, and then they commercialized those things and they went crazy because they they're perfect for kids. Kids love to eat them, and they go in them in your lunchbox. Mm-hmm. I still peel them because I don't I'm zero waste, so I don't like to buy the plastic bags. But then when no. <laughs> I usually it comes with a rubber band on them if I get right. the other one. Yep. But. But yeah, no, it's good to get people eating healthy. It's it's very health, helpful. Yeah, and yeah. Um, did you know about the disease resistance thing with the papayas in Hawaii? Like that was a big deal, right? Like didn't yes, the yeah? Do you, yeah? Did you want to talk about disease resistance a little bit? Yeah, I think disease resistance is a is a huge opportunity in in all breeding when we look at it. And um, 
We know a perfect example that I was going to share with you is downy mildew in spinach is just disastrous if you get it in your field. And it is, is usually a death knell if you're growing organic spinach because so, there really is nothing to spray on it. Wild varieties of spinach that there is resistance. And we've been breeding resistance into spinach varieties for oh, the last 25 years. Uh, the problem is it's not... Um, it's not a hardy resistance. It's not sustainable. And so about every 18 to 20 months, the spinach varieties break the resistance. Or the, uh, I should say the, the um, downy mildew breaks the resistance. And so we're on, I believe, strain 18 of disease resistance to downy mildew. Hmm. Using a breeding method like um, gene editing, we think will make the resistance to downy mildew more stable and therefore be good for spinach production, be good for the environment. We could use less chemicals on the conventional side and probably greatly benefit it on the um, organic side. Mm -hmm. And so that's one area. I mean, Mother Nature has been fantastic about giving us tools and solutions to resistance. That's how these varieties have survived in, in the environment. Um, finding those characteristics and being able to put them in the um, – into the commercial varieties for consumers is a way that we see a huge benefit for uh, for farming and, and for agriculture, uh, and to be either able to reduce our agriculture inputs or to and to use them more efficiently, better uptake of nitrogen, and more efficient use of uh, agrochemicals as those are needed. Mm -hmm. so uh, the papaya issue really was a, a um, uh, GMO solution or biotech solution that was done through a collaboration with the University of Hawaii and I believe Cornell University. And it was, you know, the papaya was being devastated by uh, a pest in, in, in Hawaii and mm -hmm. uh, they collaborated for a number of years and from what I understand just about 95 plus percent of the papayas grown in Hawaii now are uh, biotech papayas. Yeah, and it saved them. But that was them. the only way to save the industry in yeah. Hawaii. Yeah, because I think they were, like, really in danger, right? They were. Great danger. Yeah. This so, is a very similar thing that we see right now, Laura, in citrus in Florida with uh, citrus greening disease. Okay, I think I've heard something about this. We don't think that there is a biotech solution right now, but we do believe that there are some breeding successes and opportunities out there that's, one, resistant to the disease itself moving resistant to make it not um, accepted within the tree. And there's also some resistance to the Asian citrus psyllid that carries the disease and inoculates the tree. And we've got researchers doing that. And gene editing for crops that are especially tree crops and bush crops is huge because you can bring a new variety to market much quicker than it would take to breed and back cross uh, in old breeding methods that, uh, that we used to have to deal with in disease uh, before. Mm -hmm. So we think there are great opportunities in, in pest and disease resistance using gene editing in tree crops and bush crops as well. Uh, that mm -hmm. would be a great benefit, one, to farmers, to the environment, to consumers. So we're looking forward to that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if you're listening and you want to read about the papaya issue, just I think if you just Google papaya GMOs, but that was I think that was a, a big turning point for me to accept that GMOs aren't bad because I like to listen to both sides of things, and mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are against GMOs, so I listen to those arguments and I I look into them, but I I'm more on the side of like there's a lot of benefits when we're tweaking things and and making things better. We had an event in Washington last summer on food waste where we invited people from the Congress of the United States, from, from business, from several embassies, some NGOs from the environmental community to come together to really look at the issue in a, in a unique way. We didn't, it wasn't sort of a proselytizing event where we were just talking about our, product, our members' products and innovation. We had a chef. We had a woman who owns an organic grocery store in Washington, D.C. We had someone from an environmental NGO, and we had one, we had Simplot, from, which makes the potatoes that are non-browning. And they just had a really good, like, thoughtful, honest conversation around, this is a big problem, and we should all come together, all these different unique elements 
non-traditional elements and work on it together. So I think just breaking through the conversation in that way is something else that, that we do um, and that we invest in at Bio. In addition to the to the work that our companies are doing and the advocacy that we might be conveying to the Congress, it's really the let's tell this story the right way with un, unsuspecting and or non-traditional partners around one table. Wow, that's really cool because there's a whole bunch of people that touch your food before you get it, and they should all be part of that conversation, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. That's very yeah. That's very uh, smart. And I'm glad that you're doing that. And I also read that you are developing plants that can capture carbon from the atmosphere. Is that the same thing? Like you're going in and finding plants that capture more CO2 than other plants, and then you can kind of add that to certain crops? Is that what's happening there? Yeah. So I I think the, the best way to describe the carbon capture element of all of this is that there are companies and there are research institutions that are trying to figure out how to make plants more of a carbon um, dioxide sponge. So that's what plants do, is they suck carbon dioxide out of the air. That's photosynthesis. And so I I was reading an article last year about the Salk Institute in San Diego, and they're working on how to make these plants intake more carbon dioxide. They're doing this, I think, by making roots deeper, um, they're doing this by trying to change the like the exterior makeup of the root so that it's more cantaloupe-like, if you will, versus like regular kind of loosey roots, and and holding the carbon in. If they can figure that out, there's so much uh, churn in the carbon with respect to, to to plant agriculture. I think it'd be a game changer. So they're they're really trying in that respect to to improve that carbon fixation. So if there's a lot of carbon that's sequestered in the roots, but then we harvest that crop, then are we just eating it? I guess it's not really going back into the atmosphere when we harvest it? Well, I think some of it will be will be harvested. Some of it, I think their their goal would be to leave a lot to leave the roots very heavy in carbon so that those that returns back into the soil improving soil health it really is is pretty similar to to what we're doing with um with plants when we look at uh, disease or pest resistance or size or flavor um you've got certain plants that will um uh, grow their roots quicker or deeper or stronger and especially when we look at developing cover crops to overwinter to hold the soil and pull any uh, any additional inputs that may still be in the soil out that's the thing that you look for. You've got a very short window to get a cover crop in the ground, and you want, you know, lot rise, or you want um, clover or beets or other things that will quickly grow and quickly establish themselves. And so, over the winter, they hold that soil uh, from compacting. Uh, they also provide that organic material when the farmer is ready to uh, chop that or, or cut it down and then plant into it. All of that breaks down, and all of that is organic matter that goes into the soil to help build the soil back up. The carbon that it pulls in retains in the soil and stays there, and the farmer doesn't have to do a strip till. It can do no-till. All of those things are favorable, but but you have to have the plants that are hardy that can sustain that early first frost or, um, you know, break down into that soil quickly. Yeah. You know, we look at a lot of crops. You want to get a, a cover on it real quick so that the weeds don't come through. And so a lot of those things are, are characteristics that you look for in a plant when you're looking to put it into your breeding program. So if you can go into um, a beet variety or a clover variety that establishes quickly and has large leaves, that almost, that immediately puts the the pressure from weeds at bay. You know, you're not going to stop weeds, and we're not saying that at all. But the Mm -hmm. quicker you get that crop established on that bare ground after a harvest, the quicker you're going to make it difficult for weeds to establish themselves. Mm -hmm. And then they don't get in the crop next season. All of those factors have, have positive impacts down the road. But what a lot of farmers are looking at across Canada, across North America, is how do we put a cover crop down for sustainability long-term in our, in our soils, mm-hmm. building up organic matter, 
and making it um, making the the soil hardier to help increase our yields and and protect our livelihood in the future. Mm-hmm. So, so we're seeing a lot of groups. Noble Foundation is one of them out of Oklahoma that's just doing great work, and it's focused almost all exclusively on cover crop varieties to help one to take that carbon out and and, and uh, retain it in the soil, but also be a benefit to the soil through that winter season and providing the farmer an organic benefit uh, to the breakdown of that uh, those roots uh, in the spring when they're about to plant. So they would plant the cover crop in the fall, right? And then winter would come and kill it, and then it would just stay there over the winter until the spring, and then they would – would they till it after that? It spring? really depends on the crop that you're looking at. Sometimes they do um, – they'll, they'll burn it down with a herbicide and plant into it. Sometimes they just plant into it depending on how big – how high the crop got, you know, because then they can uh, just – they'll plant through it. It's um, essentially – dead after the winter and they can mm-hmm. they can move on with it so there's a different uh, management practices that they use laura so it really depends what they look to do though is they would like that to green up a little bit in the spring before they plant just so it sort of shocks back to life mm-hmm. and they either till through quickly uh, on a light basis um, they mow you know pretty low over the top and put all that uh, green material you know just lay it down and then plant into that there's a number of things that they do with it um, prior to, to planting into the uh, remnants of the cover crop. Mm-hmm. So my dad is an old school farmer, and he is he plants things the way that our ancestors have been planting in Canada since the 1840s, since we've been here. So probably not like your world very much. <laughs> we never like really adopted different things. So he he tills. And, you know, everybody in the environmental world is like, no till. That's like the cool thing, right? So I'm like, what do you think about no till? Like, how do we do this? And he's like, no, because you need to, you need to use like herbicides or something like you have to like kill off all the weeds. And he's like, how are you going to get all the weeds out? If we don't till, because that's what he'll, he'll do is he tills in the fall, the spring, and then right. he goes through the rows um, when the weeds are coming up. So right. Right. I suppose for our small scale garden, if we weren't to till, we would have to use two things to keep the weeds out. So the cover crop would help, right? That's what you're saying. Right. But then mm-hmm. also we'd probably need to like kill off those weeds with something. Yeah, you, you would have to kill off the weeds, you know, with a herbicide, and that's uh, what some uh, some do when they kill off the clover or the the rye uh, when they put a cover crop in over the winter. Mm-hmm. They just kill that off and then plant into it, you know, a week or so later, because um, that's how quickly the, the Roundup will break down. And so, you, you know, it really depends. Um, but a lot of farmers have found that that no-till heat helps keep the the moisture in the soil helps keep uh, the soil there. You know, mm-hmm. depending on where you are in Canada, you may not have as much rain as uh, somebody in the Midwest has in the spring that, you know, can literally cause those huge gullies in the middle of your field if you don't have something there. And a lot of times you've yeah. either got the, you know, the soybean roots or cover crop roots or corn roots in there to help hold that soil in place. And, and the, that's why so many people in the U.S. have moved to that no-till process to, to try to keep the soil in the field and not in the in the uh, ditches and rivers and ocean. Yeah, and then the enzymes lakes. are really good, too. So if you're not tilling, it gives all the, the yeah, live... Yeah, all the carbon and everything else, and they're sequestered. That, too, yeah. But then I think, I think like, the, the enzymes and, like, the little live things in the soil are supposed yep. to be better when you're not, like, tearing it apart with discs, right? Which I think is... The also soil microbiome. Yeah, thank you. That sounds better than what I was trying to say. Uh, yep, but yep. And then this is a weird question, but like do the winds still blow the soil away down there in the U.S.? Like is that so oh, yeah, yeah, you're going to get that. But if you've got even just a basic uh, rye grass cover or mm. uh, clover cover, that's going to keep that down significantly. Yeah. You know, if it's, not, if it's not just straight bare to the winds, then you've got something there over the top of it that's, uh, that's pretty beneficial. Mm-hmm. You know, you're still going to get heavy winds and – in your Montana's, Wyoming's, North and South Dakotas, but they're you know they're still looking at putting something down to try to keep that that soil, that topsoil there, and it's uh, helped a great deal uh, from talking to farmers that I've worked with. Yeah, but all of these cool research projects that are happening either at institutions like the Salk Institute or public sector universities in Canada or the U.S. or at companies, they all all of this stuff needs to be supported by good policy, also around the world 
and by public support. So that's why you know we at Bio also work so hard on the policy front, um, trying to make sure that the investment in the regulatory environment for these types of plants and animals are set in a way that spurs innovation, um, encourages investment, encourages the Salk Institute to be able to sell that product, sell that innovation to a company or use that in a, in a public publicly beneficial way through USAID or something. Um, but we also, as I said, are truly investing in the transparency elements of this new innovation as, as well. We have a responsibility, I think, as industry and technology developers to listen to the public, to talk with the public, to listen to environmental groups and food companies who, who interface with consumers, to really lean in on transparency and mm-hmm. um, in order to make those groups feel comfortable with this innovation and society comfortable with this innovation so that we're not repeating these same conversations that have happened on GMOs for the past 25 years for the next 25 years on gene editing or synthetic biology or whatever the next wave is. I think we feel like this is the time to, to really pivot and really do lean in and talk listen to consumers more. People are scared of it because they don't understand science. And when people can talk about it in a, in a um, plain and relaxing manner, I think that helps people better understand it and be less scared of science. Yeah. There's different sides to different stories, I think. And uh, I'm trying to find the truth of things. (laughs) (laughs) So, and to find out what's, what's best and how we can move forward sustainably. But again, I think something that people don't think about in the environmental world is like, we have to feed everybody and, yep. and keep people warm, and it's very important. And, you know, I'm ex-military, and uh, that's ah. kind of always in the background of yeah. – yeah. and, you know, I was always studying historical war and ancient civilizations and stuff. So I, I know very well how bad it can go, especially if food right. isn't available. So it's very, very important that we have good food and that it's available yeah. and distributed and – you're also doing something with animal biotechnology. What even is that? I'm assuming you're not editing animal genes or? There, yeah, there are yeah. companies. Yep, yep. So just, I think animal biotechnology, is, just like with plant, is always good to put in context. Women and men have been manipulating the genetics of plants and animals since the beginning of time. To oh, get, yes. Yeah. You know, right? So to get products that they, that are favorable certain characteristics that are important to the marketplace, whatever. So, but, it, but it's just, slow, right? It's a very slow. It's slow. It's very slow. Yeah. With, it just takes, I mean, with an animal, it takes even longer than with plants because you've got to wait for animals to grow up and be able to reproduce. So there are companies and universities around the world that are, again, looking at how to use editing to, to do things like silence a virus or reduce the spread of an insect-borne illness. Those are two good examples. Heat resistance, as I talked about earlier. All of those products are under intense R&D right now. We have a couple of companies that I'll mention that belong to Biogenus is one that is working on um, a virus-resistant pig. Recombinetics is working on a cow that is pulled so that it doesn't grow, dairy cows that don't grow horns so that you don't have to cut them off, which is very painful to the animals. So they're really, there's a, there are real animal welfare characteristics. Why do people have to cut horns off cows? Oh, because. Dangerous? When you're it, yeah, when you're in the, the milking operation on a dairy farm, if the cows have horns, they poke each other and hurt each other. Oh, I see. Throughout, throughout history, the, the cows that produce the best milk have horns because of how they're bred. And so they're working to, to try to, to create that animal welfare trait for those particular cows. And all of those things are, you know, you know under, under scrutiny by the FDA and mm-hmm. they're reviewing, the, and they're reviewing those, those products now. Are animal rights activists, are they, do they support this because it could potentially lead to less animals dying and being sick and stuff? Or are they kind of against it or... I know that the Humane Society, for example, has stated that 
they are in favor of using biotechnology to improve animal welfare interesting. Uh, traits. Um, a lot of the other ones, I think, have remained largely silent. Mm-hmm. Farmers are very interested in getting this technology into their hands because if you look at the financial impact of diseases like PERS, which is a pig disease, African swine fever, which has decimated the pork industry in China, which is the large, like by far the largest pork market on earth, both of those diseases have cost billions of dollars to producers and to governments. I mean, they've killed a lot of live animals because of the, the horrible impact of, of the disease. So yeah. um, same with avian flu. The Midwest and, and Canada both had to deal with avian flu several years ago. They culled you know, millions of chickens and turkeys that would have otherwise been profitable and you know, good protein sources to the people. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Dana, this has been very cool and I appreciate the conversation. And yeah. I think there's a lot of things going on in biotech and uh, you're right. It's, it's moved well past the like the herbicide issue with GMOs. And there's a lot of exciting things going on that uh, that can be actually pretty good for the environment. So, yeah, I think so, too. I'm really glad that that, that we were able to talk. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah. Have a good one. Andy, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. Yeah, nice to talk to you too. Take care. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. (laughs) 